0: Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning everyone, and happy Thanksgiving to each and uh, every one of you. So uh, grateful that you're willing to share part of the long holiday weekend uh, with us here at, um, at Temple Baptist. And uh, we're in that Thanksgiving season where oftentimes we just really enjoy spending time with family and with friends, and we kind of reflect on uh, on really how God, how good God's been to us. And um, certainly, we have a great history here. 80 years we have seen God's goodness, God's faithfulness, and especially as we've looked at how God has literally transformed lives and stories that people share confirm just the goodness of God and what he's doing among us. I guess that's why the psalmist could write, you know, I will enter his courts with thanksgiving in my heart, right? That's, he could write that because he knew what God had done uh, for him. And uh, many of you could stand up here this morning and just share how God literally transformed your life. How he picked you up out of the miry clay and set your feet on a firm t- foundation, Hey, how he rescued you uh, from sin. I uh, I heard yesterday was a big day uh, for the Brody family. Uh, Peter Brody turned 100 years old. And what is significant about Peter Brody, Peter actually was at the original tent meetings in 1938. And in 1938, at that tent meeting, he gave his life to Jesus. Jesus. And uh, to have somebody living in the city of Sarnia who were at those original meetings, I think is quite spectacular. So uh, so happy for the Brody family to be able to celebrate uh, that big birthday. Well, you are the, uh, the first official inaugural second service crowd. So uh, give yourself a hand, you did it. You were able to set your clocks back, give yourself an extra half hour of sleep. That's why so many extra smiles this morning. Um, We're thankful for those, though, who got up and came to the 9 o'clock service. I heard we had 323 at the 915 service, so that's very exciting uh, this morning for sure. If you weren't able to be with us last week we had a members meeting after our service and I just want to kind of give you maybe a quick update uh, we were talking about renovations and people overwhelmingly very excited uh, about the future and so we're going ahead and we're starting those renovations that's why the chapel actually is closed today for our overflow they're already starting putting the new flooring in uh, the painters started arriving on Tuesday going through the building and it was agreed that we would um, also renovate our auditorium with new seating and new carpeting and so over the next couple months we're going to begin to see a lot of changes happening here very excited as we as we really were trying to endeavor to reach a new generation uh, for jesus christ so thank you for those who were able to be part of that meeting and are willing to thrust us forward and what was very exciting is so many people afterwards so how do we get involved how can we be a part of all that's happening we're going to share a little bit about that because we uh we're taking a step of faith to get some money, but we believe we can all pay, have it all paid for by Christmas, so, and that's where you'll come in, and people want to be a part of that, and we'll share more about that in the weeks uh, to come. Well, we are continuing our series that we've entitled Every Day. Five weeks ago, uh, we began a journey as we walked through uh, the book of James, a small little book that could easily get overlooked, that's only five chapters, just a couple pages, and it's toward the end of the Bible, and if you didn't know it was there, you may just miss it, and it was written by the half-brother of Jesus. and this half-brother Jesus, James, uh, had a radical change in his life because he originally didn't believe a word that his half-brother ever said. In fact, in Mark chapter 3 verse 21, it says that his family thought he was out of his mind, that he was crazy. This is referring to Jesus. But then James had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. When Jesus showed himself um, to James, all of James' doubts disappeared and he devoted his whole life. To connecting people to Jesus because he wanted people to know that Jesus had come to redeem lost people and we've learned that uh, James died a horrible death at the hands of his enemy because he would not recant in teaching and preaching and believing that Jesus had died for the sins of the world and what I like about this book so much it is so simple to understand and what I don't like about the book is it's so simple to understand because when you read it, you know exactly what it's saying. It's so practical. It meets you exactly where you are. And that's why we've said so many times that when you read through the book of James, it's, sometimes it stings. It's like you almost like get a little slap in the face, and it can be uh, challenging very much. And what I like about James is that he's like you and me. In fact, he's writing to people like you and me. He he asks the same questions that you and I ask, and I think that's why all of us find it so easy to relate to James. And James is filled; it's filled with great advice on living. And I think all of us are looking, all of us are looking for good advice. In fact, yesterday in my office, I typed in Google search "practical advice." And this is what I came up with. Some of them were really good. I have four pages, I'll only read a couple, okay? I love this one, it says, here's some advice. Figure out what you love to do, and then figure out how to get someone to pay you to do it. All right, that's good advice, right? Um, if the grass is greener on the other side, there's probably, probably more manure there, right? So keep that in, in, in mind. Um, Then I realized there's all kinds of websites that just give you practical advice. There's one on how to spend your money in Russia. Who would even know he needed advice on that? But if you're going to Russia, i am just letting you know there's advice on how to do that. I thought this was interesting. There was actually a website on giving you advice on how to find an Irish castle that's for sale. Because you never know when somebody might be looking for a castle that's for sale. I I, I love that. Uh, There's all kinds here like, Advice on how to kite surf on the Red Sea. Didn't even know we needed that. Uh, I I think this is good, and a lot of us may need this one. There was advice on how to cure bad breath. And um, how to convert your oil drum to a campfire pit. Thought that was good. But I came across uh, a letter, actually a commencement speech. It was given at the MIT, which we know is quite a prestigious school, uh, a lot of smart, intellectual people uh, attend there, and uh, if you graduate from there, it's kind of like a little status symbol. I'm an MIT grad, and uh, the commencement speaker gave the speech that seemed so simple, and I thought I would just read some um, clips or from from the speech. So he starts with the uh, addressing the uh, graduation class. He says, "Ladies and gentlemen, wear sunscreen." First piece of advice, if I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proven by scientists. He goes on to say, enjoy the power and the beauty of your youth. He says, don't worry about the future. And then he went on to say, oh yeah, you probably should worry about the future. Then he says, "Um, don't be reckless with other people's hearts. And don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. He says floss every day. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind. The race is long. Remember the compliments that you receive and forget the insults. Keep your old love letters. Throw away your old bank statements. Be kind to your knees. You'll miss them when they're gone. Get to know your parents, you'll never know when they will be gone for good. And he goes on, travel and, and different stuff like that. And, I, and as I read through that speech, I, I couldn't help but think to myself, it's full of practical advice, it's simple to understand, no big fancy words, It connect with his audience. And isn't that true with the book of James? Simple words, not complicated, easy to understand. And practical advice, for those who are genuine followers of Jesus, not just fans of Jesus, but followers of Jesus. And in chapter one of James, of course, he kind of just gets down right to the, uh, to the heavy um, things of the heart and of people, practical issues, because he first he talks about trials and he says, all of us are gonna have trials. Nobody's exempt. But what he does, he tries to challenge us to say, but how we think about trials, we we need to kind of change our thinking. Because so often when hard times come our way, the first thing that we come up with is, God, why? Why why would you allow this in my life? I mean, I thought thought once I followed you, life would be a lot easier. And it seems like you abandoned me because of the hard times. And James is saying, it's time for us maybe to rethink how we look at trials. Uh, It's not just difficulties that come into our life that's ruining our comfortable lifestyle. James says actually what God is doing is amazing because he's shaping you and he's molding you to be everything that you need to be. James reminds us that God is always working behind the scenes of your life. Why? For your good and for his glory. That's why we can be confident even when those hard times come, even when trials come. God is at work. And then James dealt with temptation and and how we're supposed to uh, deal with it. He he talked about the subject of comparison. He talked about self-deception. He talked about being a hearer of the word. I mean, a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. He, He talked about what genuine faith ought to look like. He talked about how vibrant faith produces a righteous lifestyle. He talked about how a vertical relationship needs to have a horizontal expression. Chapter one was packed with so much. That's why it's taken us a month to get through chapter one. But today, we're starting chapter 2. And I hope you're ready to dive into chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or some kind of electronic device that you can follow along with, turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And as we're going through the book of James, I feel like James is answering a question that people have today. People had it 500 years ago. People had that question a 1,000 years ago. People had the question 2,000 years ago: is, "Is my life supposed to be actually different once I have an encounter with Jesus Christ, once I know him as my personal savior, once I've invited him into my, into my life to forgive me my sins, should there be a difference? Or is it really just a get-out of, you know hell-free ticket? Or is there something going to be different about my life?" And James makes it very clear, by the way, when you've had an encounter with Jesus, everything changes in your life. It's impossible to remain the same. Things change inwardly and they change outwardly. That is why we've called this series Every Day, because our faith was designed to be a part of our everyday life. It's supposed to affect the way that you treat your wife, your faith. Your faith ought to um, affect how how you treat your husband, I mean, if you're in a dating relationship, I mean, your faith ought to, ought to affect how you, how you treat your girlfriend or, or your boyfriend. It's supposed to affect the way that you engage with your coworkers. It's, it ought to affect the way that you interact with your neighbors. It's meant to affect how you raise your children and love your children and teach your children. It's an everyday faith that James is talking about. See, our faith was never designed to be only a Sunday faith. You know, it kind of is a sad commentary on Christianity when Christians can leave the door of the church and leave everything they learn behind, and it doesn't really make a difference in their everyday life. See, that's never been part of God's original plan. And so God's given us this book, the book of James, and it's just filled with godly uh, wisdom. In fact, James says, if you live this way, God actually will bless your life. And it's not about legalism, it's about how the grace of God transforms people's lives. So I hope you've come this morning with a sense of anticipation that God may just speak to us this morning. I trust that you realize that God's Word is filled with practical advice how we ought to live as a follower of Jesus and that it affects our everyday lives. So if you're there, James chapter 2. And I'll pick it up right with verse 1. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, uh, You stand there or, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Uh, one thing is true about this world is that we are all different. We are we're all different. We act differently. We dress differently. We think differently. We speak differently. We smell differently. And God has created all of us to be unique. And when I go to an airport or a mall or a park, I love to watch people. I love watching people trying to figure, figure them out. Like, why would they wear that outfit? Like, why does he talk to his wife that way? Why do the children respond that way? Like, I, I'm always just trying to figure that out. And, and what God has created to be a good thing, diversity, man has distorted it. Man has made it an issue when people look differently or act differently or think differently. And James is, is talking to Christians here because he says brothers and sisters. And he, these are brothers and sisters who are living in a very chaotic, troubling troubling a tumultuous time in history, much like really we are living in today. And James says, as Christians, as a follower of Jesus Christ, as a disciple of his, we are not to show partiality. And partiality is an unfair bias. Uh, In this particular culture, there was a huge gap between the wealthy and the poor. And yet, when we read it, it's still relevant for us today. I mean, you read the news, you turn on the evening news, and you see where people are being discriminated against. That's what I like about the Bible. It's, it's, it's current to what we're dealing with even today. And as, and as Christians, if anyone is going to live differently, shouldn't it be us? I mean, shouldn't our lifestyles be different? And if anyone is not going to show partiality, shouldn't it be us? If there's anyone that's not going to show favoritism, shouldn't it be us? As a follower of Jesus? You know, sometimes I've heard this said, it bugs me. But you know, you'll see families who will say adopt somebody, you know, maybe here in North America from Africa or or China or Eastern Europe. And people say, Why would you adopt somebody that doesn't look like your family? And I think to myself, why would we ever judge somebody on the externals? What do I see? It's just such a small piece of the puzzle. And I actually thought I didn't have that problem. I actually thought, you know what? This is an area that James is talking about. It doesn't affect me. Partiality. Until a couple of weeks ago when I was coming down the London line and I hit the red light. And there was a person there with a sign that said, I'm hungry. Uh, need some food and money. And the first thought that came to my mind was, get a job, buddy. That was the first thought that came to my mind. Get a job. Get off those drugs. Do something with your life. And it was almost like, this is like God slapped me and said, you know what, Donald? You don't know his story. You don't know if he was kicked out of his home. Maybe it's safer to live on the streets than actually live at home. Maybe it's more dangerous. Uh, Maybe you just can't get ahead. And all of a sudden, I was like, Donald Calder, shame on you for being so quick to judge on the externals. And James, James talks about this very pointedly. He's right in our face about this. But oftentimes we can look at somebody and we can make a judgment call with ever knowing the person. See, because we often like to hang out with people who act like us and talk like us and think like us. That's why musicians hang out with musicians. That's why athletes hang out with athletes. That's why blacks sometimes will stay with blacks and whites will just stay with whites or liberals will be with liberals and conservatives will be with conservatives. I mean, is that not true? We like to be around just people that are, are like us. That's what we j- do. And, and James talks about that. The fact that, you know, that we'd only hang out with people who are just like us. And, and James is pleading with Christians to be different. If anyone is going to be different, it shouldn't be us. That's what James is saying. And James is, is so good with word pictures. He says, uh, take this situation. You know, a man comes into your assembly. uh, A man comes into your church, and he's got a fine, tailored suit on. Uh, He's no run-of-the-mill guy. Uh, He's been somewhere. He's done something with his life. He's made a name for himself. It is obvious when he walks through the doors. James paints that picture for us. And then he said, but now just picture this. Another man comes in with shabby clothes. You know, maybe he is homeless. Um, He hasn't done much with his life. He he hasn't gone very far in life. He's just poor. And James actually said, it is a sin if you pay special attention to the one and not the other. This is where the ushers kind of get involved in the story. When an usher, a person comes in, an usher, whoa, look at that fine-looking clothes. I have a great seat for you. Come follow me. Come follow me. This is the best seat in the house. Get the best view, the best sound, everything you ever need. And then someone comes in, not looking so good, and the usher says, oh, um," you know, and right in the back corner by that exit sign, I think there's a leftover stool that you could sit on. And James says, that's actually evil, and it's sinful when we act that way verse 5 he says listen my dear brothers has not god chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him but you have insulted the poor is it not the rich who are exploiting you are they not the ones who are dragging you into court are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom Uh, You belong. Don't you know, I feel like James is saying, don't you know that God is doing his best work amongst the poor? If you want to see what God's doing, go check out what God's doing amongst the poor. It will amaze you. He says God has chosen the poor of this world to do his work. And I don't know, I, I, I don't know if this is true, but this is what's in my mind. I feel that one day when we get to heaven, the roles will be reversed. And it will be the poor of this world who's been given some charge and authority and we're going to be the ones saying, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Because James says, is, has God not chosen the poor of this world who are rich in faith? Now, James doesn't say go ahead and treat the rich bad. No, no, not at all. But he is saying if you want to know what God's up to, Check out what he's doing amongst the Christian poor. They are co-heirs of faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I, you don't need to turn there, but I am going to read it to you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it makes a really interesting observation. 126, it says, Brothers, think of what you were. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards not many of you were influential not many of you were of noble birth but god chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and god chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong and he chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, actually there's not going to be a lot, of, a lot of rich people in heaven. Think about that. not going to be a lot of rich people. So if you find yourself here this morning and you're fairly well-to-do and God's blessed you financially, count yourself very fortunate that God has opened your eyes to the truth. Because it's so easy to be self-deceived by wealth. I mean, you kind of look at Hollywood every now and then you'll, you'll hear of a person who is a person of faith but it's just so easy to put all your confidence in what you've been able to accomplish your wealth, your influence you've made something of yourself and James says there's not going to be or Paul says there's not going to be a lot of people like that in heaven so if you're here this morning and God has blessed you, be very grateful Queen Victoria I remember learning this when I was in junior high Queen Victoria was recorded to have said, I'm so thankful for the words, not many. Because it said, Paul says, not many of noble birth. She says, I'm so thankful. And it doesn't say not any of noble birth. But there won't be many, Paul says. Now, this guy is a somebody. He's walked into the church. This guy has a reputation. This guy has connections. And, And James would be very careful how you treat that person because partiality is actually a wrong value judgment and there is none with God and James says neither should there be any with his children so what's the solution we'll look at verse 8 if you really keep the royal law found in scripture love your neighbor as yourself you are doing right but if you show favoritism you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. James is saying the royal royal law. The royal law. To love your neighbor that's kind of the law that's above all laws love your neighbor how how different it would be if we lived out that love your neighbor how different that would be is if we were characterized literally characterized by love you know in Matthew chapter 22 The Pharisees are asking Jesus all kinds of questions. And they say, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he says, and the second great commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law. First Corinthians chapter thirteen says that love fulf- uh, will fulfills the law. I mean, the law of love. I mean, it, it doesn't hold on. It doesn't harbor onto those hurts. It doesn't rude, It's not selfish. And that's what James is talking about here. And it's like God is saying, there, if we if we would live under this one rule, there would not need there would be no need for any other rule. If we live by that one rule to love your neighbor as yourself, we wouldn't need all the other ones. We need all the other laws in this land because we don't live out what it is to love your neighbor. Love is, a, is righteousness and action. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's all about action. And so James really hits it hard here. You know, racism. Racism. James addresses it right here. He says, you think you're better than another race. He says, actually, that's sin. The sin of partiality, James says, it, he, well, he's talking about adultery and murder. Very interesting that we, because we would think, well, that's a lesser sin. You know how we all have our own levels of sin? Like, this is a bad sin. This is, ooh, that's a bad, bad sin. Well, this one's not so bad. So we think partiality showing favoritism. Well, that's, is that that bad? And yet James, when he's talking about it, to show us the, the, the seriousness of it, I, I find it interesting that he uses adultery and murder to talk about basically not being a racist. See, they're all Interconnected. That's why James says, if you're not a murderer, but you're an adulterer, well, you've broken the law. Or if you're an adulterer, not a murderer, you've still broken the law. It's like if you were hanging over Niagara Falls, and you're hanging by a chain for dear life, and link number 12 lets go, well, you you fall to your death. But let's just say link number 12 is nice and strong, but it's link number 2 that lets go. It's the same results. And that's what James is trying to say here whether you're a murderer or adulterer, or you're one who shows favoritism and racism, he says you're guilty of being a, a lawbreaker. And James wants us to, to take this serious as to what he's talking about here. And I know sometimes people will say to me, I've heard it, well, that's just the way that I was raised. That's how I think. I was raised to be a racist. I was raised to think less of other people. And James said, but as a follower of Jesus, that is not to be our characteristic. We're to to live completely different. In, In verses 12 and 13, it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So speak and act. Don't just talk and listen. Mercy, he says, will triumph over judgment. There is a day that we will all stand before God. And I don't even fully grasp what James is saying here, but he's saying that you're going to be judged by the mercy that you have extended to others. And I don't know about you, but I want the mercy of God extended to me. And James talks about that that God would rather reward us with mercy than judgment. And, and the gospel makes us all equal. It reminds us that we're all sinners in need of a savior, that no one is better than anyone else. Sometimes we have this flawed version of, of how God you know, picks people, and he looks down and picks the smartest and the prettiest and, and the most influential and, Like that's how God does things. Like we would. I mean, I I remember so many times in junior high. You know, you're going to be playing a soccer neighborhood game or baseball. And two people are chosen to be the captains. And there's 10 of you lined up against the back wall. And the captain gets to choose. Oh, I'll take Bob. I'll take, you know, John. And then you're down to the four. And you're one of the four. And you feel like, (sighs) and then you're down to the two. And you're still against the wall. You feel so devalued. And then they say, "Call, or you can come." And you're like, "Yes, I wasn't the last person." <laughs> and sometimes I think that's how we think God chooses—looking like, for the best, the sharpest. And Paul said, "Ah, oh, actually, that's not who I choose. That's not who God looks for." In First Corinthians, it also. Um, Reminds us of our past. See, you once, I, I love that. It, Paul says, You once were slanderers, but I redeemed you. You once were adulterers, and I redeemed you. He kind of reminds people of their past, just to remind us we're all on equal ground. All in need of a savior. God does not show favoritism. And the gospel makes everyone equal. But when we show favoritism, we devalue people. And really what we're saying is that we don't fully understand the gospel. Because the gospel makes us all equal. We're all on level ground. Now here we, the story is the rich were discriminating against the poor. And you read some of the history there and it says that sometimes a rich person would come to a poor person and just come up with some, fabricate some story. They saw some land maybe the poor person had that they wanted and they would go to court and fabricate some kind of story and eventually the poor person couldn't even keep up with all the legal fees and there's finally the land which is given to the rich man. And and the thing is he's addressing brothers and Christians. This was happening in the church. This has happened with brothers and sisters with each other and then he says then you poor people you're you're trying to wedge your way in with the rich to have some some influence and james is just he speaks really directly to brothers and sisters who are living that way when you cross the line of faith when you trust jesus as your savior i think it ought to make a difference how we live In fact, in the city of Sarnia, where people are far from God, people's view of God is often developed by the way Christians act. The only picture that some people have is the picture that you and I paint by how we live. You've heard the expression that you and I may be the only Bible somebody ever reads. So I think James is very serious, and he says, we need to be careful how we treat people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5.20, it says we were actually ambassadors, and this is what it says, as if God was making his appeal through us. Can you imagine that? Like God is making the appeal to people through us. We're ambassadors. People often define who Jesus is. By the way, followers of Jesus treat other people. What if we changed that? What if we changed that? What if we really did treat people equally? What would that look like? What if we say, I'm not going to live like everyone else lives. Like, I'm going to live differently. And so James is, is, James leads us to a better world. By the way that you show mercy, you'll one day be judged with mercy. Because mercy triumphs judgment. And I realize mercy is such a churchy word. We use it, right? We often use the word, you know, grace and mercy uh, together but they're very distinct distinct attributes of God. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve, and mercy, of course, is God withholding what we do deserve. And James is telling us, show mercy. Withhold your judgment. Show mercy, even when people don't deserve it. Well, you say, how do we live that way? I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, it's one thing to say it, Donald, but it's actually a completely different thing to live it. It's... It's... I think it's too hard to, to really live that out. So, I, how do you do that? I think one way is to remember the mercy that has been shown to you. Sometimes we forget. We forget the pit from which God has pulled us out of. And we need to remember the mercy that God has shown towards us. Sometimes I think every morning we need to, to re preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again that we were sinners. And everyone needs God. Everyone. But God, who is rich in grace and mercy, rescued us from sin. And because of God's mercy, he withheld his judgment on us. And he withholds his punishment. In fact, he poured it all on his son Jesus. That's why it was such a horrific day for God the Father. Because he poured in all his wrath that should have been extended to us onto his son when Jesus died on the cross. And the mercy that we have received ought to lead us to the place where we show mercy to others. Be able to come to a place where we don't cast judgment so quickly by the externals, but we show mercy. James says it very plain and simple. Mercy triumphs judgment. I love what Tim Keller, a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in New York, he says, a merely religious person, right, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. You know, I've worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That's the language of a moralistic heart, goes on to say, I am only where I am because of the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. I'm completely equal with other people. That is the language, she says, of the Christian heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is an inevitable sign of people who grasp the doctrine of God's grace and God's mercy. So love others like people, Jesus loved them. I know that's such a cliche. Oh yeah, love people like Jesus, love them. Kind of cliche, but it doesn't lessen, the, doesn't lessen the power of its truth, it sounds so churchy. Oh, just love people like Jesus loved them. Kind of rolls off the tongue so nicely. But when it comes to actually living that out, whoa, is that ever heard? And if you ever wanna know who Jesus loved, Study the Gospels. See who Jesus hung out with. The disenfranchised, the outcast, the nobodies of this world. He was often found with those type of people. He loved people who persecuted him. He loved people that thought differently than him. He loved people who act differently than him. Love people like Jesus loved them. I tell you why. Because people, people, matter to God. That's why our whole mission is to connect people to Jesus because people matter to God. The golden rule You've heard that statement, the golden rule. We hear it in the school. It's actually found right in the Bible. In Luke chapter 6, verse 31, it says, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Such a short verse, but boy, it, it, it makes a powerful statement. Can you imagine if we actually lived that way? What would it do for our marriages? If we did unto others as we would have them to do unto us. What would it look like in our relationship with our kids or our parents or kids even with their, with their parents? If we did unto others as we'd want them to do unto us. It seems so simple to do unto others as you'd want them to do unto you. But boy, it can be hard to live out. And James is calling us to a different lifestyle. If anyone should be different, it should be us. If anyone's going to lead the way, it should be us. The enemy has made our differences to divide us and to tear us apart. And God meant for our differences to bring us together, to unite us. And I think God is calling us to live differently than perhaps how the world thinks or how the city of Sarnia thinks and lives. The Bible's called us to be different. Don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. Don't discriminate. But love people like Jesus loved them. You know, I asked myself this question this week. I wonder how, well I thought, what kind of diversity do I have in my friendships? Like diversity. Ask yourself, what's your relationships look like? Is there much of a diversity? Any difference in skin color? A difference in political view? A difference in an economic status? Different ethnicity? Or do we just reach out to the people who look just like us? Because it's comfortable. It's comfortable and it's convenient. I think if we're going to be better, better disciples, it's going to cross over all races, all boundaries, all ethnicity. Let me tell you, heaven is going to be a very diverse place. Very diverse. And I think God desires for us to have a church that represents heaven. Diverse. Very diverse. Heaven will be diverse. Imagine re- reaching people who who literally think different than you and I think. Act sometimes differently than maybe how you and I might act. Someone has got to step up and lead the way, especially in a world that is torn apart because of diversity, fractured because people think differently, divided because of our differences. And if we don't lead the way, who's going to lead the way? God has called us to live differently. Somewhere along the line, we got to say, you know, I'm just not going to live like everyone else. I'm going to live differently. I'm not going to act the way everyone else acts. I'm going to be different. We have the opportunity to show people how to fill in the racial divide. Have the opportunity to, to lead the way, to fill in the gap, to show how to love people that are different than us. Like, what have we led the way? What if we let our differences unite us instead of divide us? Because it is in moments like this that our faith is put into action and it affects our everyday life. It's when people begin to see a difference in us that people begin, I think people begin to eventually ask questions. Like, why do you act? Like, I've been watching for a couple of years now, but why do you act that way? Or why would you have done that for that person? I, I think God uses those opportunities sometimes just the crack, just to open the door crack for you to be able to say, well, actually, I never did think that way before. I, I never acted that way before. But God transformed me. God actually changed my thinking. That was not who I once was. But God did that. I think if we begin to live and act and talk differently, we're going to have the opportunity to share an amazing story, the story of Jesus and how he literally transformed lives. That's our mission. That's why we want to connect people to Jesus and connect people to one another, trying to unite us together, even as we think differently. You know, for me, one of the biggest things, for some reason, I can handle a theologically different theological differences with other people? I go, oh, I just look at them and say, well, you're wrong. And I carry on my own way. But the one that I have the most problem, I don't know why, it's because I love politics. When someone politically disagrees with me, that, I don't know what it is, it drives me crazy. And I think to myself, that person's not even a Christian. How can you think that way? And then I go, oh, actually, he probably is a better Christian than me. And I just think, you know what? That's what James is talking about. That's what he's talking about. We act differently, we think differently. But can you imagine if Temple Baptist Church in the city of Sarnia of 75,000 people, we led the way, what it was to live differently. Not talking about legalism, the do's and don'ts. I'm talking about living a life because you have been transformed by the power of Christ that causes us to think differently and act differently. Let's lead the way. Let's make a difference in our city that God has strategically placed us inside now. Let's pray.